So um, last week I kind of started on a little bit on lesson four because we had a few minutes left. We got done early lesson three, and so. Uh, but I am going to go back for those people that may be here that weren't here last week and didn't have a, a, a handout. Or by the way, these handouts. So just so you know, my attempt was that every week or every yeah basically every week you'll notice in the top up there it says like this one says L four why God proof from cause. That's lesson number four. And there should be a, uh, all the way through, I think, lesson number 11. And uh, I think it'll take us more than 11 weeks. It may take it less. I don't know. It just depends how fast I can talk. Um, but that's not my goal to try to be fast. My goal is to present this so you have some way to track and keep up with me the best you can. Otherwise, um, I would have to, I hate to say it, but I probably would leave a lot of people behind. Not because of this, just because this, some of this stuff can be really a mind bender, especially today, the topic of cause. And we talk about cause and the terms that we use and everything. Uh, it's, it's Once we get into some of the other stuff that you may be fam- more familiar with, like dinosaurs and bones and fossils and things like that, I mean, everybody understands those things. Has some? I mean, you've probably all seen Jurassic Park, so you know what dinosaurs look like, right? You know all that kind of stuff. And so th- that's a little bit more familiar, and so we be more comfortable in that section Right now, tonight is going to be a little bit tougher. And so if we finish Lesson 4, uh, and by the way, you, you, if you need to stop me and ask a question, go right ahead. I, I have no problem with that. Just If you just raise your hand, and we'll, we'll try to answer it to the best of my ability. Uh, but anyway, each page, front and back, is one lesson to the best of my ability. And um, you know, there's blanks that you can follow through on the PowerPoint and and uh, I did the best I could. I, I tell you, there are some things that don't match. Just be aware. What it says on the screen and what it says in your notes and what it says in your notes and what I'm going to say out of my mouth. And I'm try, I tried. I did, I did the best I could to match everything up. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, anyway. So, okay, let's get started. All right. And I, I tried to weave the verses into your notes in places where, you know, like, We'll talk about something, fill in a blank, and there'll be verses there to kind of support that part. But First Peter chapter three verse fifteen kind of gives us um, a um, <clears throat> gives us a direction for where we're going. It is First Peter chapter three verse fifteen says, "But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." And if you go back to the first week that we were here. This is week four, so first so a month ago when we first started, we kind of I kind of I laid out for everybody a a uh, what is what does the word apologetics mean? Where does it come from? What is that? Why do we use that word and so on? Uh, just as a reminder, First Peter chapter three and verse fifteen. If you just underline the phrase to give an answer, you just un- underline that phrase to give an answer. Then you can write out the word right next to it, apologia which is the Greek way of saying apologetic. And so the Greek word apologia means to give an answer. That's, that phrase, to give an answer, is the, is the Greek word apologia. And so it basically means to give an answer, as the verse says, to give an answer for what? For the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So basically when somebody says, well, why is, how can you prove that there's a God? How do I know that there's a God? That's what these lessons, these, each topic that we're going to cover over the next several weeks, is about how to answer that in different ways. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about, uh, the, well, this first lesson, lesson this 
So lesson four is really when we get into the meat. Lesson one, two, and three, was we talked about the definition of apologetics, and we talked about what is belief, and we talked about what is truth, and what is, how, how do we acquire knowledge, and how belief and truth and knowledge lead to how we have faith. And, uh, and I've, I've stressed this very, several times, that I, we, uh, believers should not have, we shouldn't let, the, let the, the lost world, the atheistic world, tell us, you're just a bunch of people that have blind faith. As soon as they say blind faith, you stop them and you say, no, that's not true. There's evidence out there for what I believe. The same evidence that you use to say that there is no God is the same evidence that I use to say that there is a God. You just look at the evidence incorrectly. You may not want to say it that strong, but you know that's basically the it. Because we look at the evidence. We don't have a blind faith. We're not blind to the truth. We're, we have an evidential faith. We have a, bait, we have a faith-based truth, and that's what... That's what Peter is challenging you with to say, hey, give a reason of the hope. Give it a reason of the belief that you have. You don't have a faith or a, a, a blind faith. Uh, in fact, Jesus Christ healed several blind people in the, in, the, in the Gospels. Why? To demonstrate that you don't have to be blind to the truth. And so uh, we don't need to be blind today. And so, um, you know, we, have, we don't have blind faith. We have, a, uh, we have an evidential faith. So today we're going to start with what may seem like a very obvious thing, but I need to deal with some of this kind of leading into this lesson because words and terms and phrases, they're often, in fact, they're challenged many times by the, by the world. Um, uh, they're challenged as often as any other proof of evidence, how we use the words, the terms that we talked that, that you'll hear me using frequently over the next several weeks. I would say that the majority of doubters and the majority of atheists and the majority of agnostics spend their time debating the technicality of a word far more than they debate the implications of their position. They want to, they want to take you to task over a word instead of trying to take you to task of what your actual belief system is because they know that when, you, when you're strong in your belief system and they're, ta- they're telling you why God couldn't couldn't have possibly done this, why the universe couldn't have been created by God. And you say, okay, let me give you the truth based on the evidence that you won't look at. And then you give it to them. And so they don't want to debate that. They would like to challenge you on the, on the words. And so tonight, we're, we're going to start with probably the one word, because this, this is a word that gets challenged a lot. God. The word God gets challenged a lot. What does that mean, God? And so let's describe God before we, as we get started here. Uh, so we have God. Uh, he is, who is God? What is God? What does that mean, God? So defining who and what God is can be very difficult because God is by nature a completely different form of anything than we are. I mean, we can describe ourselves, uh, and we, we all are familiar because, you know, generally we all look the same. We have five fingers and toes or, you know, on each hand and leg, and we've got ears and noses and I mean, we can do that, but we don't really know what God looks like. I mean, we know that Jesus Christ said, if you've seen God, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But that ain't the same thing, is it, as you meeting each other face to face and having a conversation with somebody. And so defining God can be a really tricky kind of thing. Therefore, we can only describe him by analogy. And we can only describe him by citing his attributes as revealed to us in the Bible. We can turn to the Bible and get, the, get his attributes and now, what do I mean by attributes? Well, we'll get to that. 
It means whole, it, it, attributes are his descriptive terms. It includes holiness. That's, a, that's an attribute. He is holy. Uh, it means omniscience. Omniscience. That means he is all-knowing. The word science kind of gives us the, impre- the, the understanding of knowledge. Uh, he is all-knowledge. He's all-knowing. Omnisapience, and I cannot remember. I'm going to look that up this week, and I forgot. Omnisapience. So if you want to look that up and shout it out, that would be great, because that's an interesting one that we don't talk about. But it is, a, it is an attribute, S-A-P-I-E-N-C-E, omnisapience. And then omnipotent, the word omnipotent simply means he is all-powerful. And then omnipresent, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. He's always present. He is everywhere. He is, he is also logical. He's righteous. He's just. He's merciful. He's gracious, and so on. So we can describe God in those terms. Um, and he is revealed to us in his creation in the pages of the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. So he revealed. We talked last week. Remember, I gave you two terms last week if you were here, uh, different kinds of revelation. There was two of them. Anybody remember what they were? Special revelation and and general, right? Okay, so what's the difference? Anybody remember the difference? What's what's special revelation? Well, he's re- he's revealed in scripture. What about general revelation? In nature, right? So the two different things. One is a spe- one is in God reveals Himself in His creation. That's general revelation, and God reveals Himself in His scripture. That's special revelation. So if you have your Bible, and, or just use the handout, it's got the notes, it's got the, most of the verses there. It, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So we need to look at Exodus and see what, what the Bible says about God, or what God says about himself, because he, he describes himself in a very special way, the way that we would never describe ourselves as. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, And God said to Moses, so you remember that story right in Exodus when God, God is up on the mountain in the burning bush. Moses says, i got to go see what this burning bush is all about. And he walks up there, and, and God says, Hey, you take off your shoes. You're, 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 you're walking the holy ground. And, and so he takes off his shoes, and he looks at the bush. And, and then Moses is challenged. Hey, I need, to, I need you to go back. And he's, he's sending him on a mission. Right? So God will send every one of us on a mission if we just listen to what he has to say. So anyway, the point is that God, makes a, God calls him up there, and, then he's, and Moses is having a conversation about the thing that God wants him to do, which is to rescue or to free Israel from Egypt. And he says, well, who shall I tell him sent me? And God answers it a question in verse 14. He said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So when Moses met with God, he, he said, who are you? Or what do I tell him? And he said, um, probably gave the, the answer with the weight of eternity in that answer. I am is not I was or I will be. I am. And so what does that mean? He says, so God, the self, he, he, the God simply meant that he is the self-existent one who reveals himself. The one thing that's different about this God the true, real, living God, and any other God entity that was that is out there in the world, is this God wants to reveal Himself to every human being on the earth. This is the only God that wants to reveal Himself to any to the rest of humanity, all of humanity. There is not a God of any lineage of any sort. 
that wants to reveal themselves to all of humanity, except the God of the Bible. That's the only one. He wants to reveal himself. So this second phrase that reveals himself, that phrase, that is the root of the debate between believers and non-believers, because uh, non-believers have no problem with a self-existing universe. Okay, I'm going to put frame this up in their, their, their terminology. They have no problem with a self-existing universe, but they don't believe that God has, and from our page here, has revealed himself, so he can't possibly exist. That would be their argument for the most part. Too often the challenge that unbelieving world is this. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence. Yet that's the whole point of general revelation and special revelation. God has over and over and over revealed himself, and he constantly is revealing himself to every one of us. When you ask God, show yourself to me, God will show himself to you. When, in your prayers, when, God, when you ask God, now, you may, not, you may not think that God reveals himself to you when you pray, but he does. We just don't look. We're not looking for God, so we don't see God. And we don't, we don't believe that he hears. So let me give you a list of the things that he has revealed himself in. This is not in your notes, and so I'm going to rapidly give you this. But let me just give, I'll try to go a little slow. First, he, he reveals himself in deed, in the actions that he does. He reveals himself in actions. He reveals himself, as I already said, in creation. He reveals himself in salvation. The only God that is concerned with the salvation of the human soul is this God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Not any other God in any other religion or any other part of the world is interested in salvation of your soul. Just this God. And it's an incredibly amazing thing that most of the lost world rejects his desire to save their soul. He's also uh, reveals himself in sacrifice. He reveals himself in the resurrection. He reveals himself in morality, in in grace, in love, and then also literally in also in every aspect of life and living. He reveals himself in every single way, in every single time. Okay, so let me give you some. I think there's some blanks that you're for going forward here describing God. God is the only self-existent, is that, let's see, yeah, okay, let me back to where I'm at here. Yeah, he is the only supreme being, the only supreme being. What does that mean, supreme? That he's higher than everything else. There is nothing, there is nobody that's higher than God. So if you were to think about it, and we, we don't have time to dig into this conversation right now, but if you think about Mount Sinai, where was God at? Top of the mountain. What's above the top of the mountain? Well, the mountain is just a, a picture or, or a type of the universe. So what's at the top of the mountain is the throne of God. So nothing could be above the throne of God. What did Lucifer say in Isaiah chapter was it 14? Ezekiel chapter 28, I believe those two chapters. But he said, I want to accept, exalt myself above God. I want to be above God. And God says, sorry, that ain't going to happen. And so, mo- so, so um, uh, Satan was cast out for the attempts to try to put himself above. Uh, he, to be supreme means he's better than anything else. He's better than anybody else. He has passed all understanding except that he has revealed himself. 
We know him because he's, he's shown himself to us. He is excellent. To be supreme means he is excellent in his being. Next, we have that God is eternally self-aware. He is eternally self-aware. What does that mean? God never gains knowledge. Now think about that. You and me, when we first were born, we didn't know a whole lot. And over a course of time, we've had to get ourselves educated. We've had to learn a skill. We've had to do a job. We've had to learn how to drive. We've had to learn how to swing a hammer. We've had to learn how to type it on a... I remember when I first learned typing, it was horrible. I never thought I would ever type after my typing class in high school. I do not know why I took that class, but I guess it was good. But anyway, the point is, is that God never gains information. It's not like God woke up and said, oh, I need to learn a thing or two here. God knows all, not, everything that's about, everything that's possibly knowable, God knows it all. And there is, it says, summed up in God, for, for everything flows out from God. Everything flows out from God, so he has, that includes life and goodness and grace and mercy, as well as condemnation, judgment, and rule. Everything comes from God. Okay, the next thing is that God, with, with God, there is no beginning, nor will he cease to exist. God is eternal. Uh, there is no beginning and no end of God. There, he is eternal. Uh, the definition of eternal is found in Psalms chapter 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. He is from everlasting to everlasting. God is also, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more details, this word, God is non-contingent. He is not contingent upon anything for his existence. What does that mean, contingent? Well, well, we'll break down that here shortly. Uh, if not this lesson, it's, I know it's in lesson five. But anyway, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll hang on to that. Just keep in mind that God is contingent. Next, God is transcendent. Um, to be transcendent is to be outside of something. He is outside of everything that is created. He, he is not inside the universe. God created the universe, but he didn't create himself. He's outside of the universe. In fact, I don't remember what the name of the verse, what the verse is, but in Isaiah, and I, um, I can't remember right now, but I always imagine myself in his, not myself, but I imagine his verse. It says that God has weighed the, the, the universe in the span of his hand. It, it, Ron, you remember that verse? I thought it was Isaiah. Anyway, he's, that's okay. It doesn't matter. You, you got to look up span of his hand. You'll find that. God is holding the whole universe. He is transcendent outside of everything. And he's holding everything else that's created in the span of his hand. Next, God is the creator of all things. I think everybody agrees with that. Isaiah 44, verse 24 says that the Lord, thy redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by itself. That's Isaiah. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And in John chapter 1, verse 3, uh, the, the Apostle John writes, All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made, was not anything made that was made. Without God's involvement, nothing was made without him being there. And then uh, the next is that God is the only God. As I said before, Isaiah 45, verse 21 it says, tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together 
who hath declared this from ancient time, who hath told it from that time? Have I not the Lord? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else besides me, a just God, a Savior. There is none besides me. And then next chapter in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. There are no gods like this God. This is an incredibly amazing God. You couldn't put this description on on any other God that claims to be God in the world. There never been had there never has been any gods before him, and never will be after him. Isaiah forty three verse ten: Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. That be all of us. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 44, verse 6 also says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So, God is also from all eternity. Uh, Proverbs chapter, or Psalm chapter 90, verse 2 before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from the last everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Okay, so that's just a short list when we're trying to describe who God is. And so when somebody says, tell me about God, these are the ways you can describe God uh, for people. But this is also part of the challenge is, is the world doesn't want to believe that this is, a, this is God. This is the kind of God that this is. So we see that God is eternal. We see that he's transcendent. We see that he is creator. The best definition that you could ever say to somebody, this is real short. This is, this is easy to remember. Uh, St. Anselm, uh, see, where's his name at here? Yeah, St. Anselm, he gave a definition of God. He said this, God, by definition, is the greatest conceivable being and therefore the highest good. So who is God? When somebody says, who's God? Well, he is the highest good. He is the greatest definition. He is the greatest thing you could possibly imagine. So when an atheist wants you to say, who is God? So just stop right here. Just, just pause your question for just a minute. Think about this. What is the greatest thing you could possibly think of? What is the greatest thing that could come out of your atheistic mind? God is better than that. Try that sometime. Because... How do they have greatness at all anyway? They have to measure greatness against something. What are they measuring against? Really, against the great, the great God of the heavens. Okay, so St. Anselm said is God, God is by definition the greatest conceivable being and therefore the highest good. So, here's one other definition. God is the, is the best explanation for why anything exists. Now, when we're talking about why does the universe exist, where do the stars come from, where, does, where do the galaxies come from, you know, how do, how do we have all this, this, this stuff in space other than the this, this satellites that we throw up ourselves, but how does all that stuff get there? God, he's the answer. He's the explanation of why anything exists. God is also the best explanation for the origin of the universe, not just explanation of, the, of why things exist, but he's the best explanation for the origin of the universe. So when when uh, when an atheist or somebody that's that's uh, a, a, a antagonist towards the truth of God says uh, the universe did created itself, so how that how was that possible? How could something create itself? And we'll talk more about that you know, through the next several weeks to answer that question. 
Well, try to answer the question. Um, so God is the best explanation of why anything exists. God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. God is also the best explanation for what is called fine-tuning. Now, we'll get into fine-tuning. I just saw a video just this past weekend that I'm going to share it with you. This is real short, but I'm going to share it with you about the concept of fine-tuning. And uh, I think you probably already know what fine-tuning means. Just, you know, tune it finely, you know, like trying to dial in a, well, we used to dial in our, our radios, try to get it fine-tuned and get it, get it working right. But anyway, we'll talk about that. God is also the best explanation for objective morals and duties. And of course, that is one of the other, another area that the that the non-believing world wants to attack your beliefs is is morals. And so we'll talk about morals uh, towards the end of this this series. Okay. So the the greatest question, the most important of all questions, is: Does God actually exist? That's what an atheist would challenge you with: Does God actually exist? So uh, as a German mathematician who helped uh, co-invent uh, calculus by the name of Gottfried Leibniz, he gives us a wonderful starting point for our search for the answer to whether God exists or not, uh, what, we, what I would call the proof for God. He declared this, let's see, this, why is there something rather than nothing? So when, you, when a, when a uh, atheist or, or somebody that... Uh, believes that the universe could create itself, is why is there something rather than nothing? Let them try to answer that question. Well, because it just is. That's basically as far as they will go. Well, it's because it is. Well, why is it? See, they, don't want to, they, they want to debate your argue, They want to argue your terms instead of arguing against your belief system. The depth of that question, why is there something rather than nothing, is really the ultimate end of many questions that humans ask. Uh, that plagued man for centuries. That's the ultimate why question, right? It's the ultimate why question. It's kind of like, why am I here? Uh, it's kind of like, why was I born? Why will I die? Uh, all, all, the, all, all find the answer in the same place in his question is, well, why is there a God? If, if you don't have a, you, you can't really answer those questions of why you're here, why you were born, why you will die. You can't answer those questions if you don't have a God. Those questions are unanswerable by the lost world and the atheist world and the non-believing world. They can't answer why you're here. They can't answer why you were born. They can't answer why you're going to die. They, they don't have an answer for those kind of things. So Leibniz's argument can be written in five statements. I talked about this a little bit last week, so hopefully this is, I know it's a little bit of review and I'm trying to go a little bit slower uh, to help make, make it make sense. Uh, but uh, there's so a lot of times when you have an argument, you got to present what what is called a pre, a, pre, a premise that you can prove back the, the truth from the premise. So in Leibniz's argument, he he can be written in five statements. Three of them are what's called a premise, and two of them are conclusions. So he makes these statements. If this is true, then that's true. That's kind of like an if-then type of a situation. So everything that exists has an explanation for the for its existence. That's the first premise that he's making. Everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. The second premise that he makes the statement of is that if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. So, again, go back to the atheist who said that the universe is created. Well, 
How? What, what is the origin? What's the, how did the universe begin to exist? You don't have an answer because you, you don't want to apply God as the answer. Third question is, the third statement that Leibniz will make, is that the universe actually exists. How many of you know that the universe exists? We all do because we live in the universe. We're part of it. We live, we're here, so we know. So that's a true statement. Okay, so if those three statements are premises and, tr- and truth statements, then we can come to these conclusions. Second, first conclusion, the universe has, ha- has an explanation of its existence because it exists. And if it, it, So you kind of work yourself back. The universe exists. So we're, we're starting the, the uh, conclusion f- number four, statement four, and we're working our way back. And each one of those one, two, and three statements lean into uh, the truth of statement four. The universe does exist. We all admit it. The universe exists. Number two, the universe has an explanation, and that explanation is God. So we're not there very far off. And first, everything that exists has an explanation for its existence. And so that gives us number four, which also gives us number five. Therefore, the explanation of the universe's existence is God. So he's making some premises statements. He's making some... Uh, statements, and he correlates those statements to a conclusion. So before we start, though, really, before we, before I now, as we're about to jump into the, what I call the proof of God here, I want, to, I want to make a couple of statements and kind of clarify a few things, and hopefully it won't send anybody off the deep end. First, a thing can exist whether we know it or not. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week. A thing can exist whether we know it or not. Yeah, so that's, that's a true statement. Secondly, is the question of whether we know it exists. Do we know it exists? So a thing can exist without our knowing it, but we cannot know it. Here's the important part of this. We cannot know it exists unless we actually know it. We cannot know it exists unless it actually exists. Let me rephrase that. It has to, you, you, so if, if it doesn't exist and we think it does, what is that called? Not real, a myth, a dream, you know, a, a made-up exi- uh, entity. Like, here's my friend. I play with my friend every day. So you don't see my friend? Rex, come on, surely you see my friend. Imagination, that's it. That That would be... It, can't ex- it has to really exist before you to know it that it exists. Third is that do we have a reason for our knowledge? Remember, that's why we went back in you know, the first couple of weeks. We talked about uh, truth and knowledge and knowing and how do you know things, how do you, how do you gain knowledge and all that. Because we, we have to understand a fundamental foundation of all of this t- conversation. Um, and then number four, there is the question of whether there is reason that it exists, and is reason a proof that it exists? Is reason a proof that something exists? Most of the reason that we give for why we believe really kind of amounts to just probabilities. And that's where a lot of the lost uh, atheistic world and the rejectors of God, they have probability. I'll just throw one out that we're not going to talk about until probably next week. The, The probability of multiple universes. Some scientists like to say, well, there's probably multiple universes out there. We just happen to be in the one that fits our lifestyle. 
Okay, well, how do you know there's multiple? Because probably there is. Probably there is. I mean, somebody wrote a theory that there's multiple universes. So probably because the scientist wrote a theory, probably there is multiple universes. That doesn't make sense. You're all laughing, but that's the way the world is. And fifth, the fifth thing is, if there is a proof, is it a scientific proof? Is it a proof by experiment, by observation, or by measurement? Those are physical things. We talked a little bit about that last week, or a couple weeks ago now. Philosophical proofs can be good proofs, but they do not have scientific, they don't have to be scientific proofs. And, and unfortunately, you can't measure a philosophical proof. So we can answer yes to the first four of these things that are on the board of these questions about the existence of God, but not to the fifth because we empirically, we cannot measure God. We can't actually measure him. We can't, we can't experiment on God. We can't do a measurement of God. We can't observe God. We can observe God's results, but we can't observe him. We can't even look at Jesus and see God now because Jesus isn't here. He's in heaven. Okay, so let's talk about the first proof. Because remember, I, I went through a list of, we've got like, I think, eight or ten proofs that we're going to be talking about. So the first proof is this one, the proof of cause. And I apologize because this is going to, like, what? You're going to say what a lot here in the next the rest, of the, the rest of the hour. Okay, so what or where did the universe come from? What did, where did the universe come from? Where did, what happened? How did it get here? Was it always here? Is it really here? What is the purpose of the, of the universe, Why, for, of what is here? These are some of the questions that are valid and rational questions to ask, and this is the type of questions that a lot of atheists would ask you because they'll throw out God and then they'll want you to answer these questions. But when you ask them, they'll turn around and walk away from you. The way we view the universe ultimately leads to the kind of answer that we're able to supply and are willing to acknowledge. So Leibniz's, uh, let me back there, Leibniz's uh, premise the, the, three, the three premise statements with the two conclusion statements um, raises the question, does the universe have a cause? Does the universe have a cause? Basically, what caused the universe? You don't understand what I mean by cause, and I'll dig into it a little bit more deeper here in, shortly. But um, what caused that? Uh, you know, what caused whatever, the circumstances? Um, what caused the, the, the kid to go into the school and shoot people up? What caused it? We want to know the cause. We have to have a cause. But ultimately, we don't, we, to answer the cause of the universe, ultimately leads to the proof of God. What caused the universe? We'll, we'll, we'll land on, the, on the, the answer is God. Okay, so all current, all current um, scientific literature points to the reality that there was a cause to the creation of the universe and all matter and energy. Now, when I say that, I want you to know that all scientific literature, all scientific literature says that the universe had a cause. But then most people will, will say that the universe is just here. It just showed up. They don't know why the bang blew. They don't know where the bang, the firecracker came from. They don't know who lit the fuse. They don't know how the fuse got lit. They don't know how long the fuse was. They don't know how much gunpowder was in there. They don't know any of those kind of things. But they'll say that the universe had a cause, but they won't answer the cause. And we'll get to all of these. these. I'm just laying out the premises and the, and the explanations right now. Okay, so if the universe had a beginning, 
If the universe had a beginning, then it has not always existed. Okay, so we know God is everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. But if the universe had a cause, if the universe had a start, it has not always existed. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm long as not twisting your head yet. So the universe has always existed. So if the universe has not always existed, then something else must be the cause for its current existence. The question is, what caused the current existence of the universe? Leibniz's argument is basically very simple. It's natural, it's intuitive, and it's commonsensical. The whole universe is a vast interlocking chain of things that were caused to come into existence. Okay, so does the universe itself have a cause? That's, we're, 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 getting, we're trying to nail down this because once we nail this down, we'll, we'll nail down God's and God's cause. Where did God come from? That's the question that the, that the lost world likes to challenge. Who caused God? If, if, if God caused the universe, who caused God? That's always where they go, and we've got a response to that. Is there a first cause? A first cause. Referred to, and now this is where we're like, what? Is there a first cause referred to as an uncaused cause? Yeah, uncaused cause. I'll explain that a little bit deeper. Does this prime cause, this first cause of the universe itself, have a cause? Does the first cause, does the prime cause, the cause that started the universe, does it have a cause? Where'd that bomb come from? Where'd that firecracker, where'd the fuse, all that stuff, where'd it come? Is this, is this a cause that is caused externally? And is it, is it a cause or as part of the whole chain of causes? Or is it an uncaused first cause? Is it an uncaused first cause? So I believe, see, I think I might be too far ahead of myself here. Now, I believe in Scripture declared that this prime first uncaused cause of the universe is itself a necessary uncaused cause. I know that's a, that's a mouthful of causes, a lot of uncaused causes there. So hang with me. What this means is that it does not need any external force to act on it to sustain it. It is not contingent on an external force. So such a force would have to be God. The force that created and started and keeps the universe in existence has to be a strong power. We've already talked about the description of God, a strong power uh, like God. The truth, is, uh, the truth for cause answers the question, does the universe have a cause? Is, if there is a first uncaused cause, then of necessity it is independent, self-explanatory cause with nothing above it, before it, or supporting it. So such a cause would have to be God. If we can prove that there is such a first cause, then we have proved that there is a God. So we're, we're talking about, you go back up to that, fir- that first line up there, not, uh, is there a first cause referred to as an uncaused cause? We're, just, we're trying to get to what is that uncaused cause? That's where I'm going, trying to, trying to d- define that. So I'm trying to go slow, so this makes, hopefully it will make sense. Okay, so let me, get, let me go a little bit deeper. Let me talk about defining the word cause. Let me define cause for you. Okay, so let me back up here. I'll, I know it's not there. So this is not in your. This is not a, on the on the board or in your notes. But you probably have heard the phrase "a worthy cause." 
Okay, a worthy cause. What is that? What is a worthy cause? Uh, that's the effort by which a person invests time, talents, and treasures for its promotion. You invest yourself, your resources, into something that you think is well worth it. Missions is a worthy cause, right? Missions is a worthy cause. You invest in missions. You invest in missionaries because it's a worthy cause. You probably have heard the other phrase, cause and effect. The result of force or effort acting on a physical, tangible object or an, or an item is the cause and effect. The action of pushing when applied to an object results in the effect of it. You push hard enough, you're strong enough, it'll move when you push it, right? Cause and effect. Cause is defined as the effort. We're still not on my notes yet. Cause is defined as the effort or force that results in the effect on and some sort of an effect on the on the object. Okay, so objects and uh, I'm doing okay. Tracking the notes good. I think you're supposed. To, I got my. Uh, my guide back there helping me make sure I'm on the right place. You don't know. Okay. I've gone past her. In that spot where we were going to delete that line. Anyway, never mind, Julie. That's okay. I'm con- I- Huh? We haven't passed it yet. Okay. Okay, so objects are classified as either... It's not out there either. I think... What? I'm lost. I'm lost. I got my head on wrong. Anyway. Okay, I'm sorry. Objects are classified either necessary or contingent on things. Objects that are dependent on an external force for an existence, for its existence, are called contingent. So let me give you an example of a contingent object. You're contingent on living by the atmosphere that, that we live in. If the atmosphere changes, you won't live anymore. Right? If we lose all the oxygen, we don't have any. We can't breathe. We will die. You're contingent on the on the environment that you're in. Objects that depend on an external force for its existence are called contingent. Necessary objects are not dependent on an external force for existence. For example, when you push an object that, it, that there is movement, the movement is contingent upon the pusher. If you push, you're, you're, you move your, if you will go out and push your car across the parking lot, it only moves because you're pushing it. You stop pushing, it stops moving. You're, the movement of the car is contingent on you pushing. But if you turn on the engine and put it in drive and step on the gas pedal, it moves by itself. It's ne- it, it no longer is necessary for you to push it. The, can, the car in its own self-power is no longer is not it's it's no longer contingent. It's necessary. It moves on its own. Well, hopefully, that's a good explanation. Newton, remember Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. He developed what we may remember as the laws of motion. Remember that his first law states that an object at rest, or even in motion, tends to stay at rest or in motion unless acted upon. The law of inertia. You guys all remember that from science class, right? All he's doing is stating God's law, really, actually. The, Newton's third law says that for every action, there is an equal or opposite reaction. So the necessary part is either contained in the, in the item itself, or it's contingent on the external moving it or doing something to it. 
Objects that are not dependent on an external force are called necessary objects. You may think of them as fundamental or basic or necessary. Necessary objects do not need an external force to make them do or react or function. They're ju- they just do it because it's fundamentally with, contained within them. They're, they, don't, they're, they have no outside necessity to exist. Things that exist necessarily exist by a necessity of their own nature. It belongs to their very nature to exist. Things that exist continually or con- uh, con- contingently fail to exist, can fail to exist, and so need an external cause to explain why they do exist. Okay, here's the best example. God is necessary. God is a necessary being. He doesn't need anything else. God, God is God on his own. He doesn't need an external to make him be God. He relies on no external force for his existence. Human beings, on the other hand, are we're all contain, we're all contingent. In fact, everything in the universe is contingent on what? On God. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for God, you wouldn't be alive. If it wasn't for God, your heart would stop. If it wasn't for God, there wouldn't be oxygen on the earth. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have gravity. If it wasn't for God, the earth wouldn't spin. The, everything that happens in the universe is it's by contingent reliance on God. And this is one of the things that an atheist disregards. What, does the universe, what keeps the universe running if God is not in the, in the picture? And when I say running, I literally mean running. The universe, according to science, is getting bigger and spreading out all the time. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about that as well. The, the heavens, the, 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 how's it go? The kingdom, his kingdom expand, is expanding forever. Speak up louder, please. That's it. the increase of his government. So there, uh, there shall be no end. Thank you. I knew it was there someplace. Okay. As early as 350 A.D., a man named Aristotle taught the truth of cause by describing four situations that define causes and that they describe exactly what God has done. Okay, so I'm going to give you a an il- it's, it's a long-winded illustration of cause, four different kinds of cause, and all of these define something that God, that God does. So hang on to see if we can make this work. First, I've got to go back to this because I've hit this a couple times. The first uncaused cause, let me define first uncaused. I'm going off just off the slides here because it's not in my notes at this point, but I, I want to go ahead and move on. Imagine a chain with an infinite number of links. One link holds up the other link. One, on, one, on one end is an anchor. The anchor is hooked to the universe. One link holds up the, the anchor or the universe, but what is holding up the other end? Everybody knows, you, okay, just imagine a log chain. Let's just do a log chain. You wrap the chain around the log because you want to pull that log to the other side of your property. It's a quarter mile wide, and you want to move your property. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to hook the other end? So you tied the chain to one end of the, to the log. What are you going to tie the other end of the chain to? Truck. Okay, so you have to have some power. Imagine the chain attached to the universe on one end, but on the other end, what's it, what's it attached to? 
The universe, the, the, the lost world says there's nothing. There's nothing there. It's just a bunch of change, cause by cause by. Each one of those links represent an, in, an, in, an in, what's the word? Um, infinite number of causes. So they'll say there's always a cause that caused a cause, and always a cause. So it's almost a song. <laughs> um, but for some reason, I just thought about uh, um, Wizard of Oz. Anyway, there's a cause for cause for cause. But at some place, at the end of the cause chain, there's got to be a mover chain. There's got to be a mover. It comes from, that's God. So when we're talking about an uncaused cause, God doesn't need a link on the backside of him while he's holding on the front side of the chain. Because he's holding the universe. He's keeping it up where it needs to be. And he's using the chain, which is his power, which is his command, which is his word, and he's holding that chain. If he lets go of the chain, the universe would stop existing. But God will never let go of the chain. But the atheist will say, well, there's just a whole bunch of links on that chain. How many? Well, as many as it takes for you stop talking to me. Okay, so I hope that was a good explanation. Let me go back to cause again and Aristotle and his, his, his four causes. I think we were going to be there. Okay. I think I've already said all of this stuff. So I, I kind of held myself up on that chain. I wanted to get back to that. So let me, okay, here we go. The proofs for God, the four, the four, the four kinds of causes there are. There are literally four causes, and they're really simple to grasp. There's material cause. What are things made of? Material causes, what are things made of? An example would be a table. A table is generally made out of wood. I mean, some tables are made out of metal, but they're made, right? They're made. They're, they're material. They're made. So let's go with the wooden table for right now. Um, the universe is made out of God's desire to express himself. Jeremiah ten twelve. He may, he hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens with a chain by his discretion. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God, God has just materially made the universe. Another form of cause is... Uh, let's see here, a, the form, uh, form and pattern, a formal cause. So let's go to this uh, piece of wood again, this, top, this tabletop. A table has a flat top and four vertical pieces that we call legs, and that counts as a table, form and pattern. Remember, God talked about the form and the pattern. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, he says, Who serve unto the example in the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So form and pattern. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things of the, of the, of the, by the word of his power, chain when he hath made him when he hath by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high okay so we have material cause we have pattern cause then we have efficient cause here we go one more efficient cause what or who is it's made by 
the source of the idea of what or who caused it to be made. For the example, then, would be a carpenter, right? And somebody had to design the table in their mind, and they put it together by, by shaping the wood to have a flat top and four legs on it. The universe is from God, from his desire to create it. You know, God desired to create the universe, and that's another thing that the lost world doesn't want to accept. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, I'm sorry, Revelation 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure they are, are and were created. And then the last of the four causes would be this, would be a final cause. What is its purpose? What is its goal? What is its, what is its design? So an example would be, you know, the, the guy needed a table so he could eat. He had a purpose for making this. There was a purpose for God making the universe. The universe has a purpose, something an atheist cannot even speak about. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else, he says. He created, he made, he formed it, the formal, formal cause. He established it. He, he made it not in vain to be inhabited. It had a purpose. The universe had a purpose. Why did we have a universe, atheist? What's the purpose of a universe? Well, it just happened. Why? Because Mother Nature wanted it, uh, or some silly answer like that. Okay, but so, so we've got the cause, and we're leading on to God. We're leading that to God. But I want to talk about for a minute uh, what I would call three objections to the proof of cause for God. The atheists have, I want to point these out to you because you may come across these when you're talking to people. So what is the first, first objection? Why doesn't God have a cause? So a self-existent, eternal God, give me a break, that's impossible. That's what they would say, right? That's, stop right there. You, that's not possible. The premise of their objection is, Everything that exists has to have an explanation for its existence. So why, does, why is God uncaused? So remember the chain? With all these links of cause and cause and cause and cause and cause and cause. And this is, this is you know, the, the, the piling on of, of uh, faulty evidence. Well, if the universe was caused by an explosion, well, what caused the explosion? Well, what caused this? What caused that? So we would just keep right on going. And you can go, you know... Uh, a thousand links in your chain, ten thousand links in your chain, but eventually you've got to get to God, and they're going to say, "Well, what caused God?" So how do we answer that? How do we answer that? See, so this, this objection is that God should have a cause, so why not just say that the universe was uncaused? Why go all the way to God? Why can't we just say the universe was uncaused? Why can't that be the final answer? This would be an atheist. Why can't the universe being uncaused be a final answer? Why does God have to be the final answer? So let's answer that question. By definition, an original cause, an original cause is an uncaused cause. So that the universe would have to have been to have to be uncaused. Does everything have to have a cause? The answer is that some things actually exist necessarily, and some things are caused to exist. But not everything has to have a cause to exist. Things that exist necessarily, meaning no beginning, exist by their own nature, such as numbers. Numbers don't, how, where, where do numbers come from? I, they don't have a cause. 
they're just there. They're numbers. And we won't take the time to get into that because that always warps my mind thinking about numbers anyway. I'm not a mathematician or anything like that. Okay, but things that exist necessarily, no beginning, exist by their own nature. Things that are caused to exist, they have a beginning. By something that they're caused by to exist by something else. They don't exist necessarily. They exist because they're contingent on something else. They exist because they were produced by something else. So when I say that say things that exist have an explanation of their existence, that means their explanation is of necessity or contingent. It's either a necessity cause or a contingent cause. Go back to Leibniz. Um, see where is it at? He states that the things that exist have an explanation for their existence. He says that the things that exist have an explanation for existence. Now, everything that exists, and God exists, so God has an explanation for his existence. So we're going to get to that. Throughout this whole series, we're going to answer the question, what is God's reason for existence? Because that's really where we're going. We're not just going to narrow it down to one topic here, but we're going to have several proofs about where God is at. Okay, so what, what Leibniz is saying is that what he means is that their explanation is either by ne- of necessity or by a contingent cause. It's inherently necessity, necessary or contingent on, a, on, a, on, a, on another being. It, things that, are, that exist are either inherently necessary or they're contingent on something else. Now, I'll warn you, there are some tricks of logic that an atheist may use at this point. We won't get into all of those tricks right now, but suffice it to say, when you clear up the explanation of existence with point one, the res- everything else falls right into place. This, this point about why doesn't God have a cause? We'll get to that. The second objection um, is the second objection is that the universe has no explanation for its cause. The, their premise, their object, their, their argument is this. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The atheist, the atheist, in refuting this premise, actually ends up confirming that they don't realize it, but their argument actually confirms the truth. They attempt to say atheism is, atheism is true, and the university has no explanation, which is a logically equivalent statement that would claim God is true, but does not have an explanation. So when they say the universe doesn't need an explanation, it's the same thing as saying God doesn't need an explanation. If 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 we, we just take it one step back, just like they're doing, so their arguments always fail. More simply, the issue of the universe having no explanation flies in the face of scientific research. To say the universe has no explanation for its beginning, has, it, it goes against everything that science is already saying. By acknowledging that there's no explanation for the universe, they concede the greatest questions of man can never be answered. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Why do I live here? What, what, where does planet come from? All those kind of questions that we already talked about. And then we have a third objection. Uh, that their third objection is that there may be an infinite number of causes. You know, link after link after link after link. So let's go back and look at the chain again one more time. So that chain. Every chain, every link is a cause, supposedly. But eventually, you, I mean, go home and take out a chain. Go to Go to... Go to the uh, go to Sutherland's. Go to the, the aisle with all the chains. I guarantee you, you will find two ends on every chain. Only two ends, unless there's a they tied the link together to kind of branch off. But even that, 
there's an end. There's always an end. Two ends, actually. So if there's no first cause, then the universe is like a big, great, a big chain with many links going back to eternity. And I have in my notes, imagine 100 links connecting at one end, but not on the other. Each link is held up by the link above it, but what holds up the whole chain? That would be the question. Okay, so go to Isaiah chapter 45. I just want to read through this passage here. I don't think these are, yeah, you might not be able to read that. That's pretty small. Maybe you can read it. Starting in verse 6, Isaiah 45 and verse 6, we're going to read down through verse 12. I'm going to take our time reading it, though. I want you to listen to what it says here. That they may know him from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. God's very clear. I am the, I am the Lord. There is nobody else. Then what he says, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Verse 8, drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Again, he's, he's restating over and over again, I am the creator, I am the stuff that's here is because of me. He's making this statement very clear. Uh, verse 9, I think we're at. Uh, we, uh, Woe unto him that striveth with his master. Let the potsherds strive in the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe, verse 10, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, Why begettest thou? Or to the woman, why hast thou brought forth? Verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. That's a, that's a challenge right there to the atheists. Ask me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. Go ahead, ask me about the work, things that I've done. Because you won't accept the answer, but I, I, I will answer. Verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Uh, and then, so let me just say this. These verses, 6 through 12, they declare the creative force that, God, that brought forth from God all that is created. And even the Apostle Paul, he understood this. He said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. He created all things. He made all things. Everything that's in heaven, and so heaven is the universe. Heaven, heaven is not just where his throne is at. Heaven is the entirety of the universe. It's everything. In fact, Paul, you remember when Paul said, I think it's in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. I had to think about that. And he said he went to the third heaven, he, but he had to get to this, from this first heaven through the second heaven to the third heaven, third heaven being where the throne of God is at. But here, Paul is very clear, all things are created that are in heaven. And that's a singular. Genesis chapter 1, heaven is singular. Uh, he created heaven and put everything in it, life and everything there is. Okay, so let me just talk about the logical necessity, because we're almost out of time here. The logical necessity of an uncaused cause. There are some, this, there, it's logical, I know it doesn't make sense, but there are six pieces of logical evidence pointing to God as the, as the uncaused cause. Number one, 
Logic demands a cause for every effect. And God is the logical cause for every effect. This is not rocket science. This is common sense. From a scientific standpoint, no one has yet observed an exception to this rule. As many things as scientists like to measure, they cannot measure this and, and try to come up with an exception to this rule that logic demands a cause for every effect. Logically, a cause has to, there's a cause for every effect. Number two, the universe demands a very great cause. Wouldn't you agree with that? A universe demands a great cause because the universe is pretty big. We're not talking about making a, a, a mountain out of a molehill type of thing here. We're talking about making a universe, everything that's contained was in God's mind, and he just spoke it, and there it was. An incredible thing that happened. The universe demands a very great cause, and God is the greatest cause. So let me go slow on this so everyone here will understand the issue. Your atheist friend will object, well, who created God then? If every effect demands a cause, who caused God? That would be their challenge. But let me hold on there, atheist. If the original question is, is what caused the universe then to have no more of an answer than to sweep it aside by saying that the universe has no cause begs the question of did the universe begin as a necessary or contingent cause? Remember the phrase necessary and contingent. If it's necessary, it doesn't need anything. So was the universe necessary? Did it it just start on its own? Or was it it held under contingency? Something had to make the universe. They would say that singularity blew up. Okay, that, that means there's something there. Again, we're, we're, we're chasing our tails, or they are, actually. So uh, for them to just answer with what caused the universe, then it has no more of an answer than to sweep it aside by saying the universe has no cause, begs the question of did the universe begin as a necessity, as necessary, or as contingent cause? So when we answer that a limitless being outside of time, space, and in the universe, um, when we answered that a, un- a limitless being outside of time and space caused the universe, we're not only answering the question more directly than the atheists and all the scientists who plead the inability of science to measure this or to answer this point, we are also giving the, necessary log- the necessary logical answer because nothing that is already a part of the universe could have created the universe. Nothing that's part of the universe could have been used to create the universe. The universe had to be created from something else. Remember what Leibniz says, uh, uh, nothing, out of nothing is nothing. We will get to that next week, actually, I think. Okay, so Bertrand Russell, one of the most prominent philosophers and atheist type of persons this side of the century, but... For all, for all of that, his arguments against the existence of God were just really weak. So I don't think I have it on the board. No, I don't. But this is a quote that he said. The fallacy in the argument of the first cause is that if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If there can be anything without a cause, it must just as well be the world as God. So then there cannot be any validity in the argument. He's just basically arguing... Everything I just said. Why can't the universe have be, be an uncaused cause? So now, here's the thing. No man living on this side of the scientific discoveries of the last 50 years 
can make the statement that Russell does, but look at the logic of what he said. He basically said logically that something can't come from nothing. The atheist objects, but you say God came from nothing, and that's a logical fallacy. You say you can't say something came from nothing at the same time claiming that God came from nothing. That's what Bertrand Russell's point is trying to make. You can't say that that things can't come from nothing and then say that God came from nothing. And I'm not saying that God came from nothing. That's not my that's not my point at all. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever there hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God has always been. He didn't, he didn't start in eternity past. He was always been. There never actually is a time for eternity past as far as God is concerned. It's just God has always been. Here's what's logically fallacious and actually self-deceiving to put God into a box of your own making and say that he has to exist by your definition doesn't fly. Not only does the atheist do that, but he has also says that God has to make an appearance to him on his own terms before he will believe in his existence. Isn't that amazing? They won't accept God. as If God was to come to them, God would come on his terms, just the same way he came to you, came to you on his terms. You couldn't demand God, you, sorry, you can't come like that. You have to come like this. You know, it's like saying, no, you, you have to wear a suit and tie before you can present yourself to me as God. You have to glow in the dark or whatever, hooks of stupid little things like that. But God says, I, I'll, come to me, I'll come to you in any way I want, but they won't accept him unless they come on, on their terms. In other words, evidence such as the infinite complexity of the DNA code, which we'll talk about later on, next couple of weeks, the infinite complexity of the DNA code is not satisfactory to the atheist. I want him. They, what they, I want him to levitate this podium while I'm watching. But we, they won't look at the DNA and say, "Wow, I see God in the DNA." They'll say, "I want to see him levitate this podium. Then I will believe in God." See, that's how an atheist will come to to the to God. I want to see him do a miracle. Well, look at the DNA, dummy. I'm sorry. That's a miracle. What is the DNA structure? What's it's the information code for every human being, every animal, every living being on the earth forever? In other words, evidence such as the infinite complexity of DNA code is not satisfactory. Uh, let's see, I don't know where I'm at. Oh, number three on these logical necessities. The third one is that the first cause must be independent of its effects. As I've already said, God is outside of creation. Logic demands that the creator be completely independent of his creation. Now reason this. Purposeless infinity could never have caused purposeful, superintelligent design found either in the universe or in nature or even in your own body. I don't know if I'll try to read that a little bit slower. Purposeless infinity could never have caused purposeful Superintelligent design found in the universe. Purposelessness cannot produce purpose. God had a purpose for you. God created the universe for a purpose. We've already looked at that. Romans or Revelation four, eleven was one of the places that we looked at. That whole passage we read in Isaiah was was that as well. Purposelessness cannot produce purpose. And you know what I mean by that. You know when your life is purposeless, nothing seems to be ever, ever get anywhere purposelessness. 
So that if the universe had a beginning, as, and even science demands that universe had a beginning, and if the beginning had a beginner, as logic demands that, then the beginner had to be separate from what he had begun. So you may live in a house, and you may have been the one that built the house, but you weren't the house. You just lived there. Number four, the first cause must be infinitely power, and we use that word omnipresent. I'm I'm sorry, omnipotent. God is all-powerful. So if there was a cause for the universe, including the space-time continuum that we live in, as long as logic and science both demand that there is, and if that cause had to be greater than the effect it produced, then not only must that cause be greater in power than anything in the universe, but it must be greater than the sum of all the power of all things in the universe combined. Okay, so take the, take the universe and try to imagine for just a minute how much power, irregardless of God for just a moment, but just how much power is contained in the universe. How much power is in the universe? I mean, the planets stay in, in orbit, the suns, the stars, they glow in the dark, which is a really cool thing. Why is it ever dark? You ever think about that? Why is it ever dark? It's a whole different topic. But, I mean, with all those, with billions and billions of stars in our own personal galaxy, it ought to be never dark. You never think about that? That's an amazing thing. Darkness. Anyway, whole different topic. But the, all the, think about all the power that's in the universe. All of the power contained holding galaxies together and whole planetary systems and, and uh, comets flying around and all of that power, gravitational pull, and all of that stuff, black holes that they supposedly found. All, all, think about all that power. Where did that power come from? You know, you can't put power in your car unless you have power from the gas or electric connector, whatever you use these days. But, you, but your, the power in your car has to receive a greater power source before the power in your car can go. You, the universe needed a greater power source than all the power contained in the universe or the universe would never go. The greater power came from God. That's an incredibly amazing thing to think about. Infinitely powerful, infinitely powerful, God is all power. Whatever the explanation that you want to search for, even in the explanation that allows God to use his own natural laws that make the miracles of the Bible pretty small potatoes, doesn't it? I mean, okay, God divided the Red Sea. God created the universe. Which one is the greater thing? What could be impossible for a God who is greater than the sum of all the universe he has ever created? What, what, this is an amazing thing. Uh, number five, we're running out of time here. Number five. The first cause must be eternal, transcendent of time. God is uncaused, and therefore he's, he is eternal. Nothing in the universe can go back to before the universe began. Nothing that's in the universe can go back to where it began. It's always, in fact, the entirety of the universe is always traveling outward from what they think is the center or where the Big Bang occurred. And it's just like a, an explosion. Everything goes outward. The universe is growing outward. You nothing in the universe, oh, I, I want to go back home and, you know, go back. They can't do that. 
from our perspective, God is without beginning or end. From God's perspective, outside of time, beginning and endings are something that he created, not something that controls God. Beginning and ending doesn't control God. He just created beginning and ending. And number six, the first cause must be all-knowing, omniscient. God is the source and sum of all knowledge. It is only logical that the Creator knows all about His creation. If we are limited to His created sphere, the earth, and He knows all about His creation, then He logically is omnipotent. Einstein said this. This is a quote by Einstein. I wish I had it on the board. The harmony of natural laws reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and active human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection of their ability to even think. So, okay, so God is all not. And how, I mean, some people are really smart. I mean, it's, it's like you know, some, they go on a game show and they win $40 million or something. I mean, because they know all, they, they have all of this knowledge, right? Or they put together a space program and they, they go up in space or, or they build some nuclear, nuclear reactors or whatever. I mean, take all of the knowledge that's in the, it's in the, in the universe right now all of that knowledge in God, it's just like a drop of knowledge that God has. It's just a speck. Einstein recognized that the order of natural laws is a pointer. The order of natural laws, and we always like to use natural laws against God, but they're his laws. Anyway, Einstein recognized that the order of natural laws is a pointer to the intelligence that stands outside of creation, which is our common definition of God. The problem for the atheist is that God has done his job too well, and because he has done his job so well, the atheist contention will be that the order that that, that the order in the universe um, is God. It has to be God. It can't be anything else. Okay, so we've got about three minutes left, so we'll go ahead. That's that's the end of that lesson four. So I hope that I hope, I hope nobody's like totally confused. Did I miss something? Okay, well, I must have left that page at home. Just click over here. Okay, we'll do it this way. Okay, so the cause must be necessary, as everything else depends on it. The cause must be infinite. So when I'm talking about first cause, this is the definition of first cause. Must be necessary, must be infinite, must be diverse, yet have unity. The cause must be intelligent. Now, that, that bang that blew up wasn't too smart. Got too close to the fireworks. The cause must be purposeful. It deliberately created everything. And remember the table? The table had a purpose. We built the, con- the, the construction guy built a table because he needed to sit down and eat, and eat a meal. And the cause must be moral. No moral law can be, with, can be had without a moral law giver. And we will get to moral law here probably, well, before this is over with. I don't know exactly when. I don't know what lesson is in. But you can see in your notes where we get to more morality and evil and suffering and all of that. Lastly, I think the, the cause must be caring. If he's not caring, there's no moral laws would have been given. So where does morality come from? Well, it comes from God, and we will talk about morality in, in depth when we get to that level. But 
if if there's if, if there is no moral if there is no caring if if the creator doesn't care about you there is no morals in the universe so and then uh oh proof two from creation that's next week proof two from creation so there we are that that did i get all the blanks this time looking okay any questions on anything Everybody under, okay, well, praise the Lord. Well, let's pray and we'll be done. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this lesson on cause and the, the proof that you do exist. There is no way that we could avoid uh, knowing that you exist. You, you had a cause for everything. It was your plan. It was your purpose. It was your uh, intent to create all things that have created so you, you could be revealed. And we never want to lose sight of the fact that it, that, that that is the key part of, of this creation. You created that you might be revealed because you wanted all life, every soul, to know who you were. And we just thank you for that. Ask, Father, that you dismiss us with your prayer or with your, with your blessing. Keep us safe on the road if it's raining. Pray for those that couldn't be here tonight, Lord. Thank you for anybody that's watching online. Ask you to bless, bless everything, bless everybody. In Jesus' name, amen.